Hello and welcome to Nudge with me, Phil Agnew. We're all guilty of spending too much time online. We know that we're a little bit too addicted to our smartphones and we wish we could use our smartphones a little less. The pandemic has only made this more difficult. During the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic back in April, Britain's internet users spent an average of four hours, two minutes online each day, 37 minutes more than they did in January of that year. There are two arguments here. On the one side, you could say that being online, especially during a time of isolation, is fantastic. It helps us keep up to speed with our friends, helps us communicate with family across the world and entertains us during down moments. But many of us also feel like we're spending too much time online in general, that we're too hooked to our devices and that we'd be better off disconnecting more. A recent BBC survey found that 60% of people thought that spending more than three hours online a day is unhealthy, well below the actual amount that most Brits spend online. We're often quick to criticise ourselves, getting frustrated after spending 30 minutes scrolling through Instagram. Books like James Clear's Brilliant Atomic Habits and Near Eel's Indistractable talk about how we as users can do more to break this addiction. But the blame doesn't just lie with us. My guest on Nudge today is Liz Costa, Senior Director at the Behavioural Insights Team, and she has written extensively about online behaviour and manipulation. She's explored how the companies behind the technology online have exploited our biases to keep us hooked, and how, if we want to break this addiction, the technology needs to change, not us. Here's Liz introducing herself. podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Sure. Thanks, Phil. And thanks so much for having me on Nudge. It's a real pleasure. Uh, so I'm Liz Costa. I'm a senior director at the Behavioural Insights team in London. Uh, The Behavioural Insights team is a social purpose consultancy. Uh, We use a sophisticated understanding of human behaviour to design policies and services that improve people's lives. 
And I've been at BIT for about six years now, uh, and I've mainly developed our work on economic policy. So particularly financial behaviour, economic growth, labour markets, consumer markets. Over the past few months, I've transitioned to leading on all aspects of domestic policy in the UK and also thinking about BIT's wider partnerships too and, um, you know, how we work with and collaborate with people across the world. Back in 2019, Liz co-authored a paper with David Halpern, Chief Executive at the Behaviour Insights team and author of the Inside the Nudge Unit book. The paper sparked debate about the behaviour science element of online harm and manipulation. In the paper, Liz explains that many of the problems we face online are behavioural based. I think that how we behave and how we make choices online is really a frontier of behavioural science. And I hope something that will be a growing focus for um, teams and academics around the world in years to come. I think the starting point, you know, from a very young age, we're all taught that we are the masters of our fate and the captains of our souls. And, you know, I believe that. I think that's true to an extent. But actually, our lives and choices aren't just powered by our minds and our abilities and our dreams. What behavioral science as a discipline has taught us is that many of the forces that drive our behavior are actually external or environmental. You know, we call this choice architecture and the choice architecture of the world around us has an enormous impact on our behavior and, you know, really the directions of our lives. And, you know, this happens both offline and online. So, you know, a classic example is that the layout of a canteen can encourage us to pick up more or less healthy food depending on what's at eye level and, um, you know, what's at the checkout. And in the same way, the layout um, of online platforms shape who we interact with, what news we read, what we believe, um, you know, even how we feel. One of the, the main features of online environments is that they are highly curated and deliberate. So if we, if we stick with our canteen example, uh, you know, if you're a policymaker trying to encourage people to choose healthier choices at canteens, you know, you do have some influence over that, that set out and that design, but, you know, it's very hard to do that at scale. Um, you know, people come in and move things around. Uh, there's lots of different competing forces. Whereas if you are designing an online supermarket, you can control exactly what people see and when and how they move through that supermarket journey through to the checkout. The incentives of businesses are to keep us scrolling, browsing, buying, sharing our data. And the questions that I've really been trying to get to the bottom of is, is that what we would choose for ourselves? Is that how we want to relate to one another? Um, and, you know, are there opportunities in there to actually shape more positive behaviours that help consumers as much as they help businesses? We've pretty much blindly walked into a world where we're now heavily influenced by online technology. Our heuristics and biases leave us open for manipulation and online digital worlds are already taking advantage of this. One study cited in Liz's paper revealed that the mere presence of a smartphone set face down on a desk can worsen performance on a memory task by 11%. 
Now, we would never accept this from non-tech products. Governments would ban a perfume that decreased performance in the same way, and consumers would never buy a piece of clothing that distracted us that much. But online, it's a different ballgame. To highlight this, Liz asked me something. So, Phil, do you have a, a smartphone, an iPhone? Do you have it in front of you? Okay, can I just ask you to sort of scroll left on the home screen and tell me, I know this is quite a revealing personal question, but tell me how much time you've spent on your phone today. For those of you listening on your smartphone, I invite you to do the same. My total was 33 minutes, which sounds okay, but I was still pretty surprised. In fact, I couldn't really remember being on my phone at all that morning. But fortunately, Liz made me feel a little better. Here's her total time. Okay, wow, I'm a lot worse than you, actually. So it's um, for the benefit of listeners, it's, it's 20 past two in the afternoon. Um, I've been awake since 6.30 and I've done an hour and 24 minutes. And most of that's been on WhatsApp, actually, um, you know, chatting to friends back in Australia this morning. A little bit of time on the NHS app, uh, trying to organise a COVID vaccine, some time on Instagram too and BBC News. So is that time a net positive or a net negative? Is it productive? Is it interesting? Is it relaxing? And to what extent did we actively choose it? And what have we shared about ourselves with whom along the way? You know, one of the issues that we talk about in the paper um, is terms and conditions and privacy notices and data sharing. And really, the reason we focus on that is because it's a it's the gateway to most interactions online. You know, for most apps and websites, it takes more than 30 minutes to read a typical um, online service agreement or privacy policy. And from a behavioural perspective, a combination of inattention and information overload means that those disclosures are largely ineffective. You know, I can tell you that even having a keen interest in these topics, I've not read the terms of service for WhatsApp or the NHS or um, Instagram or the BBC News. Um, And I have a very poor understanding of the true value exchange that I'm making with those companies, Um, you know, what data I'm sharing with them and who they're sharing it with in turn. You know, we have done some some really interesting work on this. So particularly we partnered with the UK Business Department to look at whether you can redesign um, these disclosures to improve consumers' understanding of and engagement with these terms and conditions. And we, we had some really interesting results. So the headline is, yes, you can. You, you can use behavioural design to drive up comprehension and engagement. So just telling people how long it will take to read a privacy notice roughly doubles the number of people opening it. Um, telling people it's their last chance to read it before they sign up to an online service increases opening by about 40%. And similarly, you know, using a, a bullet point summary with icons um, improves people's understanding of those terms. So that's just one of the one of the challenges, and I think it's um, the reason I'm highlighting it is that it it is the gateway that sort of sets up the relationship, and I think the sometimes the imbalance between businesses and consumers online. PayPal's terms and conditions are thirty six thousand words. 
That's longer than Hamlet. <laughs> What's worse is that most privacy policies actually require above average reading ability. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp and Snapchat's privacy policies all require college level reading ability. Yet the UK and US's average reading ability for adults is lower than this. As Liz says, this helps create an imbalance that leads us open to exploitation in multiple different ways. In the paper, Liz talks about ordering effects. There's a known behavioural bias that means we're more likely to choose the first option that is presented to us. For mobile searches, this means we click on the first three results on Google 70% of the time. In many cases, this is fine, but it leaves us open to exploitation. With 80 billion spent on Google ads each year, consumers are regularly clicking on results that are in the business's best interest, not their own best interest. Here's Liz explaining how exploitation and manipulation can happen online. Exploitation, I think, implies strong intent. And so I I do think there is exploitation happening online. And I'll go through some examples in a second. But I also think there's a long tale of examples where... It's not exploitation per, per se, but sort of just a, an unthoughtful design, if I can put it that way. But to start with exploitation, so certainly there are many examples um, of what are now being called dark patterns um, across online uh, markets and platforms. So there I'm thinking about things like greying out privacy preserving options as if, you know, you can't really click on that button when in fact you you really can. Or adding friction into a process to discourage choices like opting out of certain cookies. And I think there's a lot of, you know, seemingly small and discrete examples like that, which added up across, uh, you know, a consumer's online experience do amount to, you know, a subtle exploitation of um, of their time and, and of their data as well. I think there are other examples that I think are more shocking. If I can take some take you through some work we've been doing with um, online gambling sites. So here in the UK, online gaming sites are required to have in place responsible gambling tools, um, which are there to encourage particularly problem gamblers to moderate um, their online gambling. And one of these responsible gambling tools which is required to be provided is giving people the ability to set a daily deposit limit um, for how much money they can put on the site and how much can be spent in a day. You know, the way this works on the site is that um, you just click a drop-down menu and you get a range of a range of pound figures for what your daily deposit could be. Knowing what you do about anchoring effects, you know, what do you think is the is the top daily deposit limit? I naively guessed two hundred pounds. I guess I optimistically hoped the gambling firms would sort of be required to set lower limits, especially for people who clearly wanted to set a limit. But what do you think? Five hundred, a thousand, maybe five thousand pounds. So the daily deposit limit um, on most of these sites is £100,000. So just to really kind of emphasise this, the average household income in the UK is £30,000 a year. So this 
daily deposit limit, the top anchor for this is more than three times the average household income over a year. And this is what we're asking people to limit themselves to each day. So it's just, it's, it's actually mad. (laughs) And, you know, nothing about that is good for the consumer. Uh, Nothing about that is good for the person on that site. You know, even, even if it was far less egregious than that at a thousand pounds a day, anybody spending a thousand pounds a day or setting a daily deposit limit of a thousand pounds is probably very quickly going to be in financial difficulty unless they are very much in the top 1% of of earners in the UK. We have experimented um, with this in partnership with the gambling regulator and um, and online operators who, you know, have been really good in cooperating to um, try and change the behavioural design on these sites. And, you know, what we've seen is that changing the range of that anchor so that the top anchor is significantly lower almost halves the average daily deposit limit that people are choosing. You know, these things are really affecting the choices that people are making on these sites and there is a way to use behavioural science for good. I think there's also, as I said, you know, a long tail of examples where, you know, they're not exploitation but they are examples where businesses have the tools to help consumers and I think they either do so half-heartedly or they don't do that. And just to take the example of, of Instagram, so I've just bought a flat in London um, and I have to say I've fallen into a bit of a, a bit of an Instagram hole over um, interior decorating sites and um, I've actually set myself a time limit on Instagram of 15 minutes a day. And in order to set this time limit, I had to click. It was quite hard to find, you know, it's sort of buried in a part of the the app that you don't usually go to, um, you know, in your own settings. The way that it works is that when I get to 15 minutes, I get a pop-up that says, you've spent 15 minutes on Instagram today and your choices are either to say, okay, and if you click on okay, it just shuts the app. Or you say, ignore this time limit for today. And it's just as easy to do that as it is to to enforce it for yourself. And I think at least, you know, five days out of seven, I, I just click straight past it. These That's a, just an illustrative example, but I think that's happening, you know, right across the spectrum of apps, platforms, websites. And what I would love to see is, is some of this behavioral science and understanding of behavioral design used on the consumer's side rather than on the business's side. I was so happy when I heard that because we're so used to reading and seeing how tech companies use behavioural biases to hoover up more of our attention online. But I really wanted to hear about companies that are doing the opposite, using nudges to create an environment that's ultimately better for all of us. Here's a great example of another company making the right changes. You know, one of the recommendations we made in the paper was that Instagram and other sites, um, you know, where they were experiencing trolling and incivility on the platform, um, that they should create some positive friction for people um, and a moment of reflection and, you know, use machine learning and text analysis to identify where comments might be hurtful or abusive and 
put a pause on those and say to the person writing them, you know, are you really sure you want to post this? Um, and, you know, perhaps even going further, highlighting to that person what they might have in common with the person that they were um, writing this comment to. And another great example is work that TikTok has been doing. Um, this is actually an experiment that they ran with Irrational Labs earlier this year where they were particularly concerned about the spread of disinformation and misinformation around COVID. And they ran an experiment where they um, put a flag on those stories that they identified as potentially containing disinformation. Um, and they flagged those stories and downranked them in the, in the algorithm. And doing that reduced the shares on TikTok by 24%. Um, it reduced likes by 7% and views by 5%. And I would love to see more of these kinds of experiments out in the public domain so that we can have a conversation about that um, and work together on, you know, how to build that evidence base. The thing is, companies like TikTok shouldn't be running these experiments because it's the right thing to do. They should do it because it's something that users actually want. No one wants to be consuming fake news. No one wants to be an online troll. Research conducted by the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute found that nearly half of the 12 million consumers with mental health problems in the UK stated that they would like a set of controls like spending limits on online shops. These people want more control. Who knows? Perhaps the next big social network to take off will be one that gives consumers the power to control their privacy, to tweak their ad settings, and to be in complete control of what they see and how long they spend on the platform. To finish my conversation with Liz, I asked what would happen if we created a social network like this, if we gave consumers more control. She shared this fascinating study. So we, we've just done a project with the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation uh, and Dot Everyone on active online choices. And what we were doing was trying to see if we could design um, Android phone interfaces, particularly around user settings, uh, to empower people to make choices that were much more in line with their preferences and how they wanted to share their data, you know, how they wanted to interact with their phone. And we tested a few different, um, a few different designs and interfaces. One of them was a slider where people could move um, the user settings from connected to balanced to private, and each had a short explanation. The second intervention was a private mode. So people had two boxes. They could click either regular mode or private mode. And the third intervention, we actually put forward user settings around notifications and other things that were recommended by a trusted third party like which. And we ran an online RCT to see actually what the impact of these different interfaces and choice bundles were on people's ability to make informed choices about their privacy and personalization settings. And what we found was that all three of them increased people's ability to make active informed choices. They also all led to a much better understanding of the consequences of those choices in terms of who their data was being shared with, for example. 
and also those individuals feeling more in control. And actually the slider performed the best out of the three, but all three um, were significantly better than the sort of default Android user setting. So I think there's a role here for tech companies, regulators and government to be thinking about where are all the opportunities like that to put that control and that agency back with the consumer. It's a great example. Giving agency to the consumer does change our choices. When we understand our privacy settings, we are likely to change and tweak them to our preference. In fact, we can reference the study Liz shared right at the start of the show. Just telling users how long a privacy policy takes to read can increase the privacy policy open rates by 105%. What's obvious is that the online world is weighted in the favour of businesses. They have the data and they build the environment. But there's not a study out there that suggests that consumers are happy with this imbalance. What's more, when consumers are nudged to change that environment by tweaking privacy settings or actually reading the terms and conditions, most of the time, they grasp the opportunity. Okay, folks, unfortunately, that is all we have time for on today's show. I really loved chatting with Liz and I found her insights fascinating. As someone who's in the past praised companies, especially tech companies, for their innovative designs online, this chat was a real eye-opener for me. We can use nudges to encourage consumer behavior, but that culmination of multiple nudges like this creates a real imbalance. Marketers, I think, have to be aware of this and do more to fight against it. After all, as Liz says, this is what consumers want. The full link to Liz and Dave Halperin's paper is in the show notes, so head there to check that out. And do also follow Liz on Twitter. She's Liz underscore Costa. I've left a link to her account in the show notes. That way you can keep up to speed with all her latest work. Just a quick note to me to say thank you to everyone who supported the show um, by signing up to the email list or the Science of Marketing course. In total, over 500 of you have done that now. That's kind of mind-blowing for me, and I'm, I'm so happy that so many of you are getting, are getting value out of that. Um, and also a huge thank you to everyone who leaves me a review on Apple Podcasts as well. There's over 100 of you now who have left five-star reviews, and yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, if you want to join the course or the email list, as always, there's links to those things in the show notes. But that is all for me for now. You can join me again in two weeks for another episode of Nudge. But until then, thank you so much for listening to the show. Cheers.